Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And my co-host in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and a practicing magician. Elliot, our listeners noted that when you spoke about it, and I think by popular demand, we may have to have you and John McLaughlin do a show for us on magic. Well, I think that would be a uh, a great idea. Um I can guarantee that, you know, when you do this as a podcast, they just can't see how you do it. Eric, I'm looking forward to this uh, session uh, about a uh, book about somebody for whom you worked. I know who's one of your heroes. So uh, I'm actually planning on asking pointed questions, not only of our guest, but of you as well. So you're forewarned. Forewarned is forearmed. I'm ready to take whatever outrageous spears and arrows you uh, chuck my way. Our guest is Philip Taubman, a consulting professor at Stanford University Center for International Security and Cooperation. But before he joined uh, CSAC, Phil was a reporter and editor for the New York Times for some 30 years. And I suppose full disclosure requires me to say that uh, when he was serving as the New York Times Moscow correspondent, he and I overlapped while I served at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Phil, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, as I mentioned when we were in the green room before we got started, reading your book uh, occasioned a bit of a bout of uh, PTSD in me, having lived through so much of what you wrote about. Tell us a bit about how you came to be George Schultz's biographer. And if you could, let our listeners know uh, what you think uh, this biography brings to the burgeoning uh, literature now based on real historical sources of the Reagan administration. So the origins of the book go all the way back to the days when I was uh, covering George Shultz as Secretary of State. I was a reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times at that point and covering mostly defense intelligence issues, but uh, got drawn into diplomatic coverage, took some travels with him, including a trip around the world. Uh, and then later, when I was posted to Moscow by the Times, uh, I had a vantage point uh, to cover his efforts along with President Reagan's uh, during the time that uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, was Soviet leader, at least for the first uh, three years of Gorbachev's leadership. Uh, the relationship, you know, was a professional reporter public official relationship, uh, and it sort of drifted off uh, after he left the job of Secretary of State, and I went off and did other things at the Times. It uh, rekindled uh, when I retired from the Times in uh, 2008 and set up shop at Stanford uh, to write books, and the first book I decided to do was a book uh, about the effort of George Shultz, Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn, and Bill Perry 
uh, to abolish nuclear weapons, which seemed a surprising effort on the part of all four of them at the time, at least as I began work on that project. Uh, and as I was working on that book, uh, I hadn't finished it yet. Schultz came to me one day and asked me if I'd be interested in doing his biography. Uh, and there was no biography. Mine is really the first, uh, which is kind of surprising when you think about it, given the, the historic role that he played in winding down the Cold War. And to, uh, you know, motivate me, I guess, uh, he said, I'll give you exclusive access to my papers at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And so I dipped into those papers while I was still working on the other book. And uh, I found a lot of valuable material there including a, a, an amazing diary that had been kept by his first executive assistant as Secretary of State Raymond Seitz. So when the time came that I finished the nuclear book, I went back to him and I said, uh, I'd be very interested in doing your biography, but I think we, we have to have a clear understanding about the nature of the book I'm going to do. And the way I put it to him, I said, George, it's your life, but it's my book. Uh, and I have to have complete editorial control over it. He immediately agreed. Uh, and frankly, uh, you know, over the 10 years, roughly, that it took me to complete the book, uh, he never once tried to get me to revise the book uh, in a way uh, to reflect what he thought was a, a more favorable account of his uh, uh, role as Secretary of State or in any other part of his life. So I think you asked about the historiography here. Uh, you know, I think with the benefit of things like the Ray Seitz diary uh, and the benefit of declassified materials uh, and the benefit of uh, many interviews that I conducted with uh, colleagues of Schultz's and Reagan's, I think one can begin to uh, distill uh, a sense of core uh, events and, and dynamics in the Reagan administration that may have been a little obscure, I think, uh, until the last uh, five to 10 years. And I think what you would find in my book uh, that illuminates that point, I think most specifically, is a, a sense of the vital, really indispensable role that Schultz played uh, as Reagan's partner in winding down the Cold War and dealing with the Kremlin. I think the book also, an argument you may disagree with a bit, having been at ringside yourself, uh, is my sense that Reagan was struggling uh, in his first term to uh, execute the diplomatic dimension of, a, of his policy uh, to deal with the Soviet Union, uh, and that it, it really took George Shultz uh, to show Reagan uh, a path forward diplomatically that would uh, take advantage of the things that Reagan had done uh, to put the Kremlin on the defensive uh, in his first term. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, there's a lot of discussion in the book about Reagan's rhetoric, the belligerence of some of that uh, rhetoric, both in the campaign in 1980 and then in the early years of, of the Reagan presidency. I, I mean, I, I don't think you fall into the trap that a lot of people do. I'm thinking in particular of our colleague at Johns Hopkins, Jim Mann, who wrote a book about the difference between the first and second Reagan terms. I don't think it's as stark as Jim paints it on, on the evidence of your own 
book from the outset, from what we know now from his diary, um, Reagan was intent on negotiating uh, with uh, the Soviets and and had a strong streak of nuclear uh, abolitionism in uh, in him, but was beset by difficult divisions inside his own administration. But would you? How would you characterize his view of containment? I mean, to me, it seems like one that is pretty much in consonance with George Kennan's argument in 1947 in the, in the Mr. X article that containment applied judiciously against the Soviet Union's expansionism would ultimately lead to, as Kennan said, the, either the breakup or the mellowing of of Soviet power. Do you see Reagan as uh, diverging from that in some fundamental way? Well, what I see is I think that the Kennan doctrine of containment was modified over time. I, I agree with your description of it. But as the Cold War played out, different strategies were tried by different presidents uh, in the larger uh, effort uh, to sustain a policy of containment. Detente, for example, uh, was a modification that stressed the potential uh, convergence of uh, the two societies, the possibility of reaching agreements that uh, seemed to accept as a given that the Soviet Union would be there uh, forever. Uh, and I think when Reagan came in, certainly Reagan and, and many of the aides around him uh, believed in trying to confront the Soviet Union in a way that I don't think one could say some of his predecessors had done as directly. And he did that. Uh, there's no doubt, and I think my book uh, goes into detail on this, uh, you know, he was used a lot of belligerent rhetoric, uh, uh, invested with the assent of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, uh, billions and billions of dollars in building up America's defenses. Uh, he uh, approved and, and uh, advocated the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, which, while at least in my view, and I think a lot, the view of a lot of people at the time was technologically unrealistic, uh, had the advantage of uh, adding to the sense in the Kremlin that the United States was advancing in ways that it might not be able to match. Uh, so he did all those things. Uh, but as I, as I say in the book, uh, it really took Schultz to provide the diplomacy uh, to execute on the on the steps that he had taken, and and you alluded yourself to the infighting. I mean, you know, it's just incredible how much uh, opposition Schultz faced in trying to take basic diplomatic steps with the Kremlin. Uh, the people around the president uh, seemed to be implacably opposed to almost every diplomatic initiative that at least uh, Schultz thought might be successful at the time. So I think. Yes, Reagan uh, was consistent with Kennan in some ways, but I think he also uh, went a step beyond Kennan in some senses with the kind of hostile confrontation approach that he took at the outset of his presidency. So I'd, I'd like to push back on both of you. Uh, Eric, I don't think uh, Reagan's understanding of containment was anything like Kennan's. You know, Kennan was appalled at the idea of a military dimension of containment. And it was actually a much more passive kind of construction. Reagan, and you know, we I recall our uh, 
session with Will Inboden. I think Will is right that Reagan did have this vision of putting pressure on Russia, uh, on the Soviet Union, and negotiating with it, to be sure, but only after it was, as uh, Phil has said, really on the back foot, and it was willing to press. Now, Phil, I'm not so sure I agree with you either, because it seems to me, you know, for example, you quote um, National Security uh, Decision Directive 75, which you know, a lot of people talk about, which is uh, the one where they're talking about uh, overtime, containing and overtime reversing Soviet expansionism. Well, given when this was taking place, you know, after uh, the Russian occupation of Afghanistan, that's not entirely unreasonable. Uh, competing with them militarily, again, after, given where the United States was in the 1970s, not unreasonable. Uh, to promote within the narrow limits available to us the process of change in the Soviet Union. I think, you know, it's an understanding of limits, but uh, something that not unreasonable to press. And then it says to engage the Soviet Union in negotiations to attempt to reach agreements which protect and enhance U.S. interests. Well, that's kind of the job of the president. Now, I mean, obviously there were fights in the Reagan administration, as there always are. And people like Dick Pipes, uh, was an old professor of mine, was probably a lot uh, harder on the Soviet Union than uh, than perhaps Schultz was. But I guess the point that I would make is from Reagan's point of view, this all kind of fit together. Uh, that is to say, he had a vision of putting the Russians on the back foot, as as you said. You know, one part of it, which the book doesn't really go into, is a very active promotion of a insurgency in Afghanistan against the Russians. And then when the time came, he, you know, there would be negotiations and he was always to some extent open to that. So I, you know, I, I hate to say it, but in some ways this makes me think more and more highly of Reagan as having been able to, you know, while, while everybody thinks that he's kind of out of touch and unable and uh, is, you know, to some extent at the mercy of his subordinates, he actually got what he wanted, which makes me think that maybe he wasn't a puppet. Well, you know, my estimation of Reagan changed considerably in the process of doing the book. Uh, you know, uh, I ended up thinking much more favorably about him as I did the book than I felt when I began the book. But I do think that the missing element uh, in the Reagan strategy, uh, and I'm not sure it was as clearly thought out by Reagan as the uh, belligerent uh kind of language he was using and the military buildup that he was investing in, I think was the diplomatic uh, part of it. Uh, and, you know, once Schultz came in as Secretary of State, he tried repeatedly uh, to get uh, diplomatic uh, uh, overtures going with the Kremlin beyond the stalled arms control negotiations, which were kind of uh, static at, at that point. And it, it was a fortuitous combination, as I describe in the book, of a blizzard and Nancy Reagan that kind of was the uh, breakthrough to get some kind of discussion started, uh, you know, early on. This uh, this would have been, uh, you know, under uh, Andropov. Uh, but, you know, that was an amazing moment retrospectively when you look back on it where Nancy Reagan uh, anxious that her husband was being wrongly depicted as a warmonger saw Schultz as an ally and trying to uh, uh, 
develop a, a, a more positive legacy for her husband. Uh, and then she took advantage of this blizzard that paralyzed Washington in February of 83 to invite the uh, Schultzes over for dinner. And it was that night at the private quarters of the White House that, that Schultz really got his first full sense of what Reagan wanted to do and that it included diplomacy. And even because of that dinner, the, f the first constructive, you know, granted very minimal bit of diplomacy began, which was the effort to, uh, to get the Pentecostals who'd been holed up in the American embassy in Moscow freed uh, so that they could go out onto the street and not get arrested and then would be allowed to emigrate. But isn't the really the, the only real opening for diplomacy would come when, once you had Gorbachev? Well, sure. There wasn't really room for a serious diplomatic initiative when, you know, you had this sort of deteriorating KGB uh, veteran in the shape of Andropa for the, you know, the other superannuated leaders who were all one by one dying in office. They were not really going to be in a position to to negotiate anything worth worth negotiating. So doesn't all this really hinge? I mean, I'm, I, and I, I, I no mean no way mean to diminish George Schultz's role, but it, you know, it isn't it? It's the arrival of Gorbachev that makes the really big difference, and Reagan deciding, yeah, as did Maggie Thatcher, this is somebody we can do business with. Right. Well, look, you know, we'll never know what might or might not have happened with Andropov and Chernyenko. You're quite right; they were they were dying as they took office, and and uh, they were gone, you know, in a matter of months in both cases. Uh, but the reality is, if you look at it just within the context of the American side, uh, you know, an effort to even see what was plausible and possible with with these kind of uh, elderly Soviet leaders was was uh, kind of stopped before it ever could get started because of opposition around Schultz in the in the administration. And and I would say, and I think it's an important point uh, that. Schultz was really, you know, I think clairvoyant in understanding when he met with Gorbachev at Chernenko's funeral in 1985 uh, in Moscow, that Gorbachev was a game changer uh, in the Kremlin. Uh, and uh, I think Reagan picked up on that when he got to Geneva for the first summit. Uh, but Schultz was the advocate of that against a, a tidal wave of internal material coming out of the CIA and the Reagan administration saying that Gorbachev was just a fresh face on an old policy. Yeah, I want to uh, dig in a little bit more on the White House side of this, uh, Phil. But before I do, I want to uh, you know, defend my honor, which my co-host is like impugning here uh, with regard to Kennan. I think one has to distinguish, by the way, between the containment strategy as articulated by Kennan in the X article which was then picked up on by lots of people, as Phil said, in different permutations and combinations. And what Kennan himself later made of it, in, you know, in the, in the end of the day, you're right. I mean, he, he claimed retroactively that he had no intention of suggesting that can, uh, containment should be a military doctrine, but purely just a politico-diplomatic doctrine. But that's not the way the article actually reads, nor did most people who read it, take it that way, and the language is pretty clear. Contain the Soviets until the either breaks Soviet power or it mellows. I mean, that, you know, remains 
what was in the X article. Well, so, I, we, we should be we should be talking to our, our guests. But since you fired a shot back, I'll fire another one back at you, which is I mean, <laughs> it seems to me the thing that's distinctive about Reagan is, is the aggressiveness that, you know, whereas Kennan thought if you hold the ring around the Russia, the Soviets, the internal dynamics of the regime would bring it at some point to either mellowing or the point of collapse. And there was some merit to that. What was distinctive about uh, Reagan was the intensely competitive approach, which was shaped by people like Pipes, who I think does deserve a lot of credit for that, which he followed on. And I, and I, I you know, I very much take the point that Schultz early on detected that Gorbachev was indeed a, a different kind of character. And I think that's it's interesting right. that it's both him and, and Thatcher who picked up on that much more quickly than the, the rest of the U.S. government did. But but I think there there was a kind of um, willingness to really lean forward and really press, which I don't think was really envisioned in the original containment policy. No, I would go further and say that one of the things that's distinctive about the Reagan approach, and it's enshrined in, in both NSC 32 and 75, is the notion of competing with the um, Russians on a variety of, of different levels, including particularly economic, uh, where Reagan thought we had a huge comparative advantage, but also contesting their gains in the third world, which had been uh, a place where, you know, American efforts at detente earlier, as Bill was talking about, had had foundered because of Soviet aggressiveness in the third world during the Carter, Carter years. Phil, on the White House side of this, though, you know, you were talking about the people trying to restrain Schultz. And again, I think you do a masterful job using Ray's diaries of outlining, um, you know, just how frustrating and consistent, you know, a lot of the, this bureaucratic infighting uh, was. But in the White House, there, there were divided councils. I mean, you talk about the role that Mrs. Reagan played in that dinner, but well beyond the dinner. There was also Jim Baker and Mike Deaver, who clearly had a different view than Ed Meese. Uh, who uh, was the senior counselor and longtime Reagan aide. Um, even in the NSC itself, Judge Clark had uh, one view uh, and Dick Pipes had a view, but uh, Bud McFarland's view was, you know, quite different. And McFarland worked on and off with Schultz, sometimes at cross purposes with Schultz, but, you know, frequently in sympathy with Schultz. It, it, I mean, it, it was not kind of a unified White House against George Schultz. It was, you know, a kind of mixed bag of shifting alliances. And then, you know, you did have uh, the Cap Weinberger uh, phenomenon, which we, we should uh, come back to because that's, it's really a fascinating um, relationship and I'd like to come back to. So let me elaborate on it a little bit because I think, yes, there were uh, allies, Jim Baker, certainly, as chief of staff, Mike Deaver, deputy chief, chief of staff. And, and Deaver, of course, was was very close to Nancy Reagan. And he controlled the schedule. Yeah, he was, controlled the was... schedule. But the preponderance of, of heavyweights in the national security uh, circle around Reagan uh, were not in agreement with Schultz. You, you've got Weinberger. Don't forget Bill Casey. CIA, who had a seat at the table uh, in those days, uh, Gene Kirkpatrick, UN ambassador, who was at least nominally a cabinet member uh, in the Reagan administration. Uh, so, you know, the, a lot of the heavyweights were were in opposition to, to what he wanted to do. 
Uh, and I think one of the things that I found so striking uh, that's in the site's diary, and I understand that, you know, some of what Seitz is recounting is is George Schultz venting at the end of the day. He comes back from meetings of one kind or another at defense or the White House, and he's deeply frustrated and, uh, and he vents. But even if you discount for that, you see the number of times that Schultz made an effort to get a diplomatic track going and it gets swatted down uh, in one way or the other. And it, it, to go back, I think one of the most dramatic instances of that to me was uh, I had alluded earlier to the post uh, blizzard dinner diplomacy to try to get the Pentecostals uh, re out of the Soviet Union. Bill Clark, the national security advisor was quite aggravated by the idea that uh, kind of came up in this dinner at the White House between Schultz and Reagan, that the Soviet ambassador Dubrin should come over to the White House. Reagan hadn't met Dubrin yet, uh, other than going over to the Soviet embassy to sign a, a condolence book about Brezhnev when Brezhnev died. And so Schultz, with Reagan's agreement, takes Dobrynin over to the White House and they meet in the family quarters. And the, the meeting, which was supposed to last 10 or 15 minutes, goes on for 90 minutes. And it turns out that Reagan's really interested in engaging with the Soviet ambassador. And out of that discussion comes this Pentecostal diplomacy. So within a few days of this meeting, I think it was Bud McFarlane describing the added Bill Clark's attitude about this Pentecostal diplomacy and the meeting between Reagan and Dobrynin says to the deputy secretary of state at the time, says, you know, the only reason that Reagan said those things to, uh, to Schultz at dinner was he wanted to appease his wife, Nancy. So to me, you know, that was, that was a really uh, kind of uh, back alley way of trying to undermine Schultz. I mean, you know, to believe at that point that Reagan was just trying to appease his wife, I don't buy that. Yeah, although, I mean, in a sense, Schultz had the last laugh because Nancy it ends did. up pushing Bill Clark out. Uh, he did, and indeed, Clark was pushed out, I think largely through the back maneuvering of Nancy Reagan. But it just shows you, I cite that example just to show the, the degree to which some of the folks around Reagan were trying to block Schultz. You know, I, I, I have to say, as I think back on my memories of this period, that's quite a while ago, I, everybody was appalled at the nefarious influence of Nancy Reagan, you know, consulting <laughs> astrologers, you know, so not a clue about any kind of policy, let alone foreign policy, let alone arms control. You know, and now she's a hero or heroine. It's, you know, maybe it's just the, uh, you know, the odd quirks of, of history. But it's, um, you know, it, I mean, this in a way goes back to an earlier comment that Eric made, that it, it is interesting that we're only now getting real histories of the Reagan administration. And that we're just going to, I'm sure we're going to go through several cycles of evaluations and reassessments of some of the key personalities. Yeah, I want to pick up on something that uh, Phil said about uh, Schultz venting. I, I mentioned when we were in the green room that Ray would um, have these sessions with Schultz after the end of the day and going through whatever business they needed to go through. And then 
getting Schultz's sense of what had happened in meetings at the White House that Ray might not have been privy to. Um, a lot of times there are uh, late day phone calls coming in while they're meeting, including from the first lady and from the president and um, Clark and other other principals. Um, but the the venting was real. I mean, and and so everything you describe is very accurate. But as someone who was living in the middle of this as George Schultz's special assistant and who was getting briefed that the next morning by Ray about not everything that was in the diary, but uh, but a lot of what was in the uh, the diary in terms of Judge Clark and uh, Weinberger and this and that, it didn't feel uh, quite as beleaguered as uh, the end of day venting might make it sound because Schultz was very, very busy doing bunches of other things, you know, getting the extraterritorial sanctions on the Yamal pipeline that had been one of the issues that precipitated Al Haig's resignation resolved without blowing up the NATO alliance in order to facilitate the deployment of the intermediate uh, range nuclear forces uh, that was part of the dual track decision inherited by the Reagan administration ultimately leads to the INF treaty actually helping negotiate at Williamsburg at the summit in the spring of 83 a joint statement among the uh, G7 leaders that welcomes the actual deployment now Phil you you tell a very true story about what happened which was a whole bunch of stuff about uh, Nicaragua blows up at that point including the you know effort to mine the rivers in uh, Nicaragua and ports and all of that but at the same time, he was doing these other things that he was succeeding at doing that were also important. So, uh, as I as I mentioned, it it you know a lot of times felt like a rugby scrum. But Schultz, you know, said to us that uh, he particularly admired one of the assistant secretaries who would go in and uh, you know get involved in the rugby scrum, fight for what he could, make allies with whoever was an ally that day, and maybe different allies the next day, but dust himself off every day and go back into battle and. My sense at the time when he said that was that was very much how he perceived himself uh, as, you know, going back into battle and fighting with all this, although it was obviously enervating to continue to run into all these uh, fights and did precipitate, as you uh, document, several uh, efforts to use the leverage she knew he had after Al Haig's secretaryship blew up and, and Haig uh, was fired actually by Reagan, but had threatened to resign repeatedly. The Reaganauts knew that it would be very, very bad for the president, particularly before an election in 1984, if Schultz were to resign. So he he knew how to leverage that. I'd be interested in your 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 view of that, but also the to go back to the Schultz Weinberger relationship, which is really fascinating. I remember early on in his tenure, Secretary Schultz was asked whether he thought he could get along with Secretary Weinberger because uh, Weinberger and Haig had famously been um, kind of at each other's throats in the first year and a half of the Reagan administration. And Schultz said um, with malice aforethought, oh, absolutely, I can get along with Cap. He's worked for me before um, because he had he had been Schultz's deputy at OMB and he had been the general counsel for Bechtel when Schultz was the president. And Schultz, I think, genuinely thought that he had a chance to build a a better uh, relationship with Weinberger than Haig had. Uh, and I, I can attest to the fact, as your book documents, he was very hastily disabused of that notion. But the the Schultz 
Weinberger relationship just seems to take on such a aura of personal animosity. And I'm just wondering, you know, after all your research is what you made of that. So uh, first to go back uh, to, to your observation about, you know, Schultz's sort of sticking it out and having some successes, uh, even in Reagan's first term. You know, when you look back at Schultz, people ask me, what were the characteristic character traits that defined him and accounted for his success? And I think uh, two of them were very, very conspicuous in that first term, patience and persistence. He just stuck it out. He, he put together resignation threats a number of times. Uh, he either pulled back from them or Reagan wouldn't accept them. And uh, but, you know, he he was a man of uh, uncommon patience, I would say. And he, he kind of waited out his opponents in some senses. And, and then history broke in his direction in the second term, uh, you know, in, in large part because Gorbachev appeared in Moscow and and made possible things that might not have been possible in the first term. Uh, on the Schultz-Weinberger relationship, it is a, it's a fascinating dynamic, and it, I think it goes to a, a, a larger point about the force and uh, personality plays in shaping history, uh, which is often underestimated, I think. Uh, and this is a classic example of, of two men uh, who, for reasons I think I, I don't completely understand, uh, were uh, had a very... Uh, unfriendly relationship in some ways during the Reagan administration. You you cited some of the factors that might have led to a degree of resentment, I think, on Weinberger's part. He always seemed to be the uh, person with the less prestigious job, uh, whether it was in the Nixon administration or at Bechtel, even at their respective camps at the Bohemian Grove, uh, in the summer, Schultz was at the more prestigious camp than than Weinberger, and this somehow carried over, uh, you know, into the Reagan administration. Colin Powell, who I interviewed about all of this, uh, he said he understood it completely. You know, it, it was basically, you know, George was the boss uh, uh, through the years, and then suddenly. They show up together in Washington, and Weinberger is in a position of equal power to Schultz, essentially, uh, and he's no longer a subordinate, uh, and he seemed to uh, uh, enjoy exercising his authority in ways that uh, that uh, aggravated Schultz. You know, there's a fun, there's a moment at the beginning of of the Schultz's term as secretary that that frankly amazed me. There was going to be a weekly or or regular breakfast, at least, between uh, Schultz and Weinberger. And it's just within a matter of weeks of Schultz becoming Secretary of State. He goes over to the Defense Department. They have breakfast. They get into an argument over whether M1 tanks should be sold to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Schultz opposes it. Weinberger favors it. Weinberger, at least according to Schultz, goes into a long kind of argument in favor of the sale. <laughs> at that point, you know, Schultz looks at Weinberger and says, uh, Cap, everything you just said was incomprehensible. You know, it, it was like, whoa, you know, the Secretary of State is talking to the Secretary of Defense about that, you know, like three weeks into his secretaryship. So there was a bristling hostility between them that played out in ways that were 
probably constructive at times because they gave Reagan, you know, opposing views on various issues. Uh, but I think at other times it was destructive. They had some interesting uh, principal disagreements. Uh, I think the one that is actually quite significant as you think about American attitudes towards the use of force, uh, you don't really talk about it that much in this book, but uh, Weinberger articulates his, I think there were six principles for the use of force, which were you know, clearly a reaction to Vietnam and which would, would be extraordinarily restrictive and in many ways completely unrealistic. And Schultz responds in a speech, and then actually I think they kind of have one more exchange of speeches. They're never on a podium together to talk about this. But but it, it is conducted at a pretty high level. I mean, they are both trying to articulate approaches that make sense for the United States that has recovered from Vietnam in some ways, but in other ways still bears all the scars. So I think that, you know, I, I give them both credit for engaging at, at that level, as well as the, you know, personal pushing and shoving of two alpha males. Yeah, look, there was no question it was uh, high-end policy disputes that animated their relationship, but uh, there there was something going on beyond that uh, that, that affected the relationship. Uh, and you're, you're right. Uh, they were often on opposite sides on the use of force with the secretary of state advocating the use of force and the secretary of defense opposing it. Schultz, uh, told me a number of times that the worst day of his life was the day of the truck bombing of the Marine barracks in in Lebanon, uh, in 83. I was the one who woke him up in the middle of the night to tell him about it. He felt terrible because he was himself a former Marine, but also because he had been the primary advocate of putting the Marines into Lebanon on the ground, and Weinberger had opposed that. And then you could see that argument uh, reappear uh, because of the terrorist strikes in, in Lebanon uh, during that period, where Schultz was pressing hard for a retaliatory military strike against the uh, terrorists uh, in Lebanon and, and in Syria. And uh, Weinberger was deeply opposed to that. Uh, so it was both, you know, policy conflict of a high order and personal animosity of a high order, I would say. I wanted to ask you about Schultz in the Nixon administration, uh, but maybe we can we can do that now or discuss it later. What do, what do you say, Eric? Well, I, you know, my question actually goes to that. So why don't I ask my question and, and Phil can answer both. One of the relationships that's really fascinating here, and because you've written another book about, uh, as you mentioned, about um, Henry Kissinger and George Schultz and Sam Nunn and Bill Perry's effort to follow up Ronald Reagan's nuclear abolitionism, if you will, is the relationship between Kissinger and Schultz, which of course begins in the Nixon administration. But it's really quite, you know, phenomenal because you document here, I mean, as Henry, I'm saying this advisedly, as Henry approaches his 100th birthday, George having died shortly after his, at multiple points in the Nixon administration, uh, before he gets into the Reagan administration, uh, at the end of the Reagan administration, when they have the, the summit in uh, New York City with Gorbachev, Kissinger is either privately undermining Schultz or directly publicly criticizing him. Uh, you, you note uh, that the New York summit 
uh, and uh, Kissinger's criticism in the, I think it was the Washington Post, if I recall correctly, ends up eliciting a, you know, a kind of waspish letter from George complaining about the, the public criticism. Yet out of office, they end up becoming very close colleagues, including on the Four Horsemen op-ed that you've written a book about, but also uh, on multiple other issues where they uh, wrote joint op-eds together. And Kissinger ends up saying, there's no American I would more want to entrust the fate of the nation to than George Shultz. How do you explain that relationship? And and maybe you can talk about uh, Shultz and the Nixon administration at the same Yeah, same no, that's time. a fascinating relationship. And I think, uh, you know, the the way it ended up uh, in their latter years as a as a, a close seemingly close friendship in many ways uh, and an alliance uh, of sorts on the nuclear weapons issue i think that that's attributable uh, to a charitable streak on in george schultz who was willing to forgive henry for the sniping that went on during the reagan years so if you back up to the Nixon administration, you know they were they were allies uh, uh, in a way at that point, although in in different spheres. Clearly, uh, Schultz was not much involved in foreign policy uh, in the Nixon administration, and Kissinger was at the center of it. Uh, but towards the end of the Nixon administration, as the president was getting uh, engulfed by Watergate and drinking heavily and seemingly to act increasingly erratically, Schultz and Kissinger uh, would get together periodically uh, to uh, to talk, uh, to make sure that the government wasn't running off the rails uh, as the Nixon administration was essentially disintegrating. Uh, then you fast forward to the Reagan years uh, and uh, and Kissinger w was doubtful about Schultz's qualifications to be Secretary of State, thinking that Schultz lacked the necessary background in foreign affairs and arms control issues uh, and in dealing- Certainly not as qualified as Henry. Right. Well, yeah, nobody, of course, is as well qualified as Henry, uh, uh, which in some ways is literally true. Uh, but, you know, he, uh, he let the White House know that he didn't think that uh, Schultz would be a, a, a good candidate to be Secretary of State, which, by the way, Nixon agreed with at the time. So Reagan goes ahead and brings him in to replace Hay. Uh, and then once Reagan and, and Schultz began to do business with Gorbachev, Henry was writing columns in those days, uh, and he kept sniping at, at the at the effort to work out deals with uh, Gorbachev. And, and you mentioned at one point, Schultz got really hot under the collar about a, a, a column that Kissinger had written and wrote back a rather curt letter uh, complaining about the sniping that was coming from Kissinger. Uh, so throughout the Reagan administration, there was, uh, you could not describe them as friends, certainly not uh, in terms of their public communication. But once out of office, I think, uh, you know, George saw advantages in in uh, befriending Kissinger and vice versa, uh, and then clearly uh, there were mutual benefits to be had, uh, starting with Schultz's effort to uh, bring together a group to call for the elimination of nuclear weapons, and he th he thought rightly so 
that if I can get Henry Kissinger to sign up for this, it will give our effort a huge boost. And, and indeed it did. Uh, although I think, you know, Kissinger's commitment to that cause was probably less uh, uh, kind of heartfelt than Schultz's. Yeah. So I, the question I wanted to ask you about uh, the Nixon years, I, th- I, I found one of the really fascinating parts of the book come quite early on, where it's towards the end of the Nixon administration. And you know, here's George Schultz, who is, by all accounts, an upright man, uh, someone of real integrity. I think that was you know, part of what attracted people like my friend Eric Edelman to him. And yet he's working for a guy who ultimately he knows is somewhat unprincipled and devious. And he decides to stay on, but he knows that maybe he should quit. And and the way you describe it in the book, you, you quote Arthur Burns' uh, journal in which he says, Schultz is a very sad uh, man. And, uh, and then I think Burns says... Um, Schultz is tired, but I think he likes being secretary too much to give it up. And, and you know, I think that it's a particularly interesting moment because Nixon was a much better character than Trump, Lord knows. But, you know, we've had another presidency recently where you have good people wrestling with, you know, working in very, very high office for somebody who they know is unprincipled and devious and possibly criminal. You know, I and it hadn't really occurred to me that Schultz went through his own travails. And I wonder if you could share anything with that. Did he reflect on that later in life? Do you think he regretted any of the choices that he made? Just curious to know how he processed all that. It's a good question. So the example, I'll just describe it very briefly, that brings us to the fore is uh, Nixon's effort to weaponize the IRS against his opponents. Uh, Schultz being Treasury Secretary at the time is, uh, you know, supervising the IRS. It reports to him. And after Schultz and the IRS Commissioner Johnny Walters uh, rebuffed an effort from the White House uh, delivered by John Dean, the White House counsel, to weaponize the IRS against a, a long list of Nixon's enemies, they did, they blocked that. But then the White House came back subsequently and said, we want to, to we want the IRS to examine the tax returns of Larry O'Brien, the head of the Democratic National Committee. And Schultz succeeded to that. Uh, and Johnny Walters, the IRS commissioner, later looked back on that and criticized Schultz, said he was disappointed that Schultz let that go forward. John Ehrlichman at the White House sort of browbeat uh, uh, Schultz into doing this. Uh, and it was a, a moment where I think Schultz did not live up to his own ideals or, or values. And when I confronted him with all of this during, the, you know, research for the biography, uh, he at first didn't want to hear about it. Uh, he seemed stricken when I brought it up. Uh, and uh, eventually, you know, we got into a conversation about it. Uh, and the counter argument, the defense he he made at the time was that, you know, uh, Nixon had done many good things as president. Uh, he had tried to uh, uh, defend Larry O'Brien when it was clear after the IRS investigation that O'Brien hadn't done anything wrong. And in fact, the IRS cleared O'Brien. Uh, and then vis-a-vis Nixon, his argument uh, was essentially, uh, you know, if I had left 
someone else would have come in who would not have stood up against these kind of uh, efforts by Nixon. So that's, you know, that's an argument you hear in Washington when very senior officials are serving under presidents that they have come to realize, uh, you know, are engaged in unethical or even criminal conduct. Uh, and and I think George regretted that uh, effort with O'Brien. Uh, and the other thing I would attribute that to was a, a sense of loyalty on Schultz's part that, uh, you know, when he signs up to serve with the president, goes to the title of the book in the nation's service, he really felt an obligation, a patriotic duty to, to serve. Uh, but in that case, I think he stayed on too long. Uh, you know, with Nixon, he resigned only two or three months before Nixon did. Phil, I wonder if I could get you to comment on two things, because we're running out of time. Um, and I want to go ahead and give Elliot kind of the last word. But one, George Schultz as negotiator. Uh, what what your sense? I mean, this is someone who was a labor economist, had been secretary of labor, had been involved in any number of labor management negotiations. So he might not have a lot of foreign affairs experience when he becomes secretary of state, but he's got a lot of negotiating experience that's pretty relevant. And my sense of him was that he was actually a damn good negotiator. I mean, I, you, you recount in the book the very fraught uh, session he had with Andre Gromyko, the Soviet foreign minister, after the shootdown of KAL 007 uh, in Madrid. The meeting was in Madrid. Shootdown was over over Sakhalin, or a little after that, I guess, over Russian territory. But one of the things that struck me about that meeting was, which I don't think is captured in in any of the interviews or the documents that you were able to look at, is what Schultz told us afterwards which was he told Gromyko that he'd been instructed by Reagan that the only thing they could talk about was the, the shootdown and to get the Russians to own up to it and apologize and make restitution for the families that had been killed, et cetera. And uh, Gromyko uh, got very angry, as you say. It was probably one of the most contentious confrontational meetings between an American secretary of state and a Soviet foreign minister in the history of the Cold War. But... The thing that Schultz told us that was interesting was that Gromyko went to the door to walk out and looked back because, and it was clear to Schultz that he was looking back, expecting Schultz to come out of his chair and come get Gromyko and keep him from walking out. But that Schultz just sat there kind of Buddha-like until Gromyko realized that Schultz wasn't going to come after him and that Schultz was content to let him walk out the door at which point he came back and sat down and they continued to have an exchange of unpleasantries for another hour or so. But so I'd be interested in your sense of Schultz's negotiator based on, on the work you did for the book. And then the other thing that struck me about Schultz as a subordinate, bearing in mind the cliche that no man is a hero to his valet. I mean, I, I, um, I always used to say that George Schultz was the you know, uh, living exception to the rule, because really, I think all his former special assistants idolized him, and we were the ones carrying his bags on those trips. Schultz really got more out of the career foreign service than any secretary uh, I saw during my 30 years in government. And it wasn't because, as Kissinger and Nixon and others believed, that he would become the captive of the State Department. I mean, you have many instances in the book where he basically tells people get with the you know 
get with the program or or leave. The president makes foreign policy and we get to execute it. You know, we get to advise him, but he's the one who calls the shots. If you don't like it, he he really imposed Reagan's agenda in some ways on the Foreign Service, but also used that subject matter expertise, I think, to great advantage. So could you comment on those two observations? Am I wrong or? No, no, I think you're quite right. Uh, you know, Schultz had a formula for negotiations that grew out of his uh, time as a labor economist and, a, and a, someone trying to help the captains of industry and labor union leaders to resolve disputes and avoid strikes or settle strikes. Uh, and the formula was very simple. It was essentially if, if, you, if, you, if people come together and argue over principle, they'll never get to agreement. But if, they, if you bring them together uh, to solve a problem, uh, they'll solve the problem. Uh, and I think he saw, he applied that rule uh, to diplomacy. And I think you can see it once he had an interlocutor in Edward Shevardnadze, the Soviet foreign minister under, uh, under Gorbachev. That's exactly what they did over and over again was to sort of disaggregate the, the, the ideological and uh, political dimensions of the relationship, set them aside and tackle the problems uh, inherent in the relationship. And, you know, that came up uh, ultimately, uh, you know, in resolving the mini crisis over the arrest of Nick Danilov, the U.S. news correspondent in, Washington, in Moscow, which you know, I think had it not been for those two men in, in their seats at that time, that crisis might have extended a lot longer. And pro probably there never would have been a Reykjavik summit uh, that came out of that dispute. Uh, and out of Reykjavik ultimately came the INF agreement, though not, you know, in Reykjavik, but later. So I think, you know, George had a real uh, a kind of gift for sort of taking the passion out of issues and trying to look at the substance of them and figure out how where common ground could be found. I think, you know, the 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 phrase that I would use above all others to describe George Schultz uh, is a pragmatic problem solver. Uh, you know, you can see that across uh, his career, really. So let me ask uh, one last question. He passed away in, if I remember correctly, February of 2021. My impression is that he was really quite sharp to the to the very end. Uh, was paying attention to public affairs. You, you know, you described him as a pragmatic problem solver. He's clearly a you know very deep patriot. I, I am curious. What's your take on how he understood the political turmoil of the last years of his life? A Trump administration. This is. Now, whatever Trump is, that's not the Republican Party of George Schultz, even though I don't think he was really willing to go, you know, go out there and denounce him uh, very sharply in public. But what, what, did, what was his view? I mean, he, you know, one of the last statesmen, probably the last statesman of that generation, which had, you know, fought in World War II and been through all that. Well, he privately, he was uh, uh, deeply unsettled by the Trump presidency, uh, and it sort of crept up on him. He could tell during the, 20, the uh, 2016 campaign that, that Trump was steering the Republican Party off in a kind of dark direction. 
but he was reluctant to say anything publicly. He finally did issue a joint statement with Henry Kissinger on the Friday evening of Labor Day weekend in 2016, which is, as you Washington Washingtonians know, is probably the, you, you put out a press release <laughs> on the Friday of a holiday weekend, it's going to get zero coverage and attention. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. But they did say in their joint statement that they, not, they would vote for neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump, which, you know, considering that they were two diehard Republicans was was an important statement for them to make. Uh, and they did say that whomever was elected, however, they would uh, be glad to assist uh, after the election. And then as the Trump presidency played out, he became increasingly disturbed by what he saw. I, I did a joint appearance with him at the Olympic Club in San Francisco one day at lunch. This was midway through the Trump presidency, I think. Uh, and uh, George pulled from his pocket to answer a question, uh, a speech that Ronald Reagan had given as president, uh, extolling the, the uh, importance of immigration in American history. It's a stirring speech. Uh, you know, if you go back and look at it, uh, it was it was an eloquent defense of immigration as, as a phenomenon that has uh, re-energized the United States uh, over and over again over the decades. Uh, so he was certainly disturbed by, by uh, Trump's immigration policies, and he became increasingly, I think, unsettled over foreign policy management. Uh, and they, uh, although, you know, the disarray in the Trump administration over foreign policy was was acute too, as it had been in Reagan, but. In Reagan, it was all within the bounds of what we would consider normal debate about policy issues. In the Reagan administration, it was kind of out of bounds, often with crazy stuff going on. Uh, you know, the president either condoning or seeming to ignore. So, you know, by the time George died, he he was unable really cognitively to to speak up much anymore about these issues. Uh, but I can tell you, having had private conversations with him, uh, he was appalled at the Trump presidency. We could go on uh, for hours, literally, talking about George Shultz, uh, who, as uh, Elliot said at the outset, is one of my heroes. Um, our guest has been Philip Taubman, the author of In the Nation's Service, The Life and Times of George P. Shultz, the first really full biography, the, first, the only biography, I believe, of one of America's uh, greatest 20th century statesmen. Uh, Phil, thanks for joining us on Shield of the Republic. It's been great fun. Thank you.